Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I should have found that really, really upsetting. <laughs> I'm actually going to cry. Oh, that was horrible. The story I'm about to tell is sad in parts. Sad enough to make me cry. Sometimes cruel, sometimes full of good intentions. It's a family saga and a courtroom drama. It's about how we live with animals, what we do to them, and what they're entitled to expect from us. Next month, an important case will come before five appeals court judges in New York. But the plaintiff won't be in court to hear it. She'll be behind bars a few miles away, where she's been for over 40 years. Her feelings won't be hurt by the experts in court, arguing about whether she's got the mental capacity, whether she's smart enough, to qualify for rights you and I take for granted. We've talked to a few people who've met her, and they'd all agree she's pretty thick-skinned. She won't hear the legal arguments about the enormous impact her case could have on animal rights in the US and maybe around the world, even though she's got very big ears. I'm Sam Weinberg, and this is the story of Happy, the elephant in the courtroom. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily SenseMaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play Store, and take a free trial. Welcome to 1970s America. Mr. Nixon, did you know about the burglary of our Democratic National Headquarters? Watergate, the end of the Vietnam War. That we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam. Hollywood, the birth of Apple. 
Everybody should have a friend like Apple. We're in California, just south of LA. This is the world that greeted a young elephant, wrenched from her home and family, packed into a crate and shipped to the other side of the world. She was not yet two years old. Hey, happy. Good girl. But she was always a little special. I've been working with the elephants here at the Bronx Zoo for 27 years. Happy's my favorite elephant out of all of them. She just loves to play. Good girl. Trunk up. I'm going to miss Happy probably most of all. She's just got a really good heart, I think. She's very accepting of everybody here. Happy, speak. My God, you sound older than me. Speak. Back in New York in the 1970s, Happy was a celebrity. She wore a blue and black polka-dotted dress trimmed with tassels and studded with rhinestones. Once a year, while thousands of people cheered her on, she'd do a tug-of-war against teams of jocks and always win. 20 years ago, she hit the headlines again, this time for being smart rather than strong. She was the first elephant ever to take an experiment designed to test if an animal is self-aware enough to recognise itself, and she passed. That was quite a moment. It's key to this whole story, and we'll come back to it. Now, Happy is 49 years old and making what could be her biggest news splash of all. She's caught up in a high-octane battle over her future, about whether she stays in the Bronx Zoo, where she's lived for 43 years, or she's moved to an elephant sanctuary in Tennessee. Next month, those five judges could change her life with one bang of the gavel. The decision, and what could be Happy's retirement years, rests on whether the man who calls himself Happy's lawyer can convince the court that an elephant can be a legal person. And, if so, that she's being unlawfully detained in one of America's most venerable zoos. But Happy's case is about more than her future. It's about our relationship with the animals that live among us and which sustain us as food, as clothing, or in any number of industrial processes. There are over 600,000 animals and birds in around 10,000 zoos worldwide. In Britain alone, we keep 51 million animals as pets, at the last estimate. There are more tigers in captivity in China than in the wild in the whole world. And, as we've found out this year, the way we interact with animals can have deadly consequences. If Happy becomes the first elephant to be granted rights like we have, the right to bodily freedom, the trumpet could sound on a new era, and not just for her. How much do we really know about the animals around us? in our homes, our zoos, our farms and our factories. And is now the time to start rewriting their place in our world. The end of those big arguments is some way off, but we know where they might begin. They could begin in the New York Supreme Court in just a few weeks with the case of Happy the Elephant. Let's go back to the beginning, Thailand, in 1972. Seven baby elephants were rounded up and wrenched out of their lives in the forest. They were packed into crates and loaded onto a ship which steamed across the Pacific to Lion Country Safari Park in California. They'd been bought for $800 each. Along with Happy were six others who, although they weren't blood relatives, became, to all intents and purposes, her second family. And what do you call seven small elephants? Well, obviously, happy, grumpy, Sneezy, sleepy, bashful, dopey, 
again. And oh, I always forget the last one. You're Doc. <laughs> why, why, yeah. Doc. Yeah. Yes. That's true. The seven baby elephants were taken to lion country up in the dry Laguna Hills. Now, <clears throat> now way back then, though it's not that long ago, there were no <laughs> buildings out there. Nothing. Yeah. It was yeah. it was cattle grazing area. That's Greg McGilvery. Uh, He's a film director who's lived in Laguna his whole life and filmed in Nine Country around that time. He doesn't remember the baby elephants, but he remembers well the scenery that they stepped into when they were unloaded from their crates. And it's a world away from the humid green forests of Thailand. And when Lion Country leased the property, they leased kind of this rolling hills with lots of groves of eucalyptus, light brown or almost yellow, you know, grass. And they they lease quite a big area and enough so that they can have all these animals roaming wild. One of the interesting things about making this podcast has been how difficult we found it to speak to people who care for or train elephants. They're scared of what could happen if they talk. We'll come back to the reasons why later. But finding people who knew Happy when she was growing up from a calf to an adult has been impossible. But we can piece together her early years. Here's what we know. Lion Country Safari in Laguna opened in 1970. It closed in 1984, but it saw a lot of trouble in its short life. In 1978, Bubbles the Hippo escaped. She rolled down a hill and died after being shot with tranquilizer darts by rangers. Cool. Hello, I'm Paul 91 on the Medicoid at Lion Country Safari. They said at the front gate have a subject of attack by an elephant. In July 1983, a few years after Happy left, an elephant called Misty threw off her tethers and stomped her trainer to death before going on a three-hour rampage. Soon after the seven baby elephants got to Laguna, Sleepy died. Asian elephants in the wild live about as long as humans, and Sleepy wouldn't have been more than a couple of years old when she went to sleep and never woke up. We understand enough about elephants now to know that Happy would probably remember an incident like that. Having been taken away from her mother and her own family unit, her her close female within her family, a calf of that age would immediately look to form bonds with someone. Um, and, And that would be the companions she has around her. So within that group of six, they may not have all been equally as bonded to each other, but there would have been close alliances formed and, and, and close friendships formed as, as a sort of a replacement, as a proxy for, for her maternal relationship. That's Lucy Bates, an expert in elephant cognition, and, like almost everyone we'll speak to in this story, actively engaged in the arguments about Happy's future. Sleepy's death is just one of the reasons Laguna Hills would have been a really stressful place for a young elephant to grow up. The same year that Misty killed a warden, a chimpanzee attacked and injured its trainer, and a two-year-old boy was mauled by a tiger. And so for Happy, her early life, which would more normally be spent in the midst of a big, noisy, multi-generational family, was full of upheaval and loss. And then, suddenly, the six remaining elephants were on the move. 
from the Laguna Hills, they were transported across the United States to Lion Country's other safari park, a couple of miles outside Palm Beach in Florida. A few years later, they were split apart again. While Happy's life is the heart of our story, there are six other stories to tell. Well, five, since sadly, Sleepy never made it beyond California. There was Doc. For 10 years, Doc was passed around various performing elephant outfits before being sold to his final home in 1988, Bowmanville Zoo in Ontario, Canada. Bowmanville Zoo. Get your free kids pass at bowmanvillezoo.com. His role, like a lot of elephants in zoos back then, was to wow the crowds. The famous circus elephant trainer Rex Williams called Doc the best-looking elephant in North America. Rex taught Doc some tricks. It was fun for the crowds, but deadly for Doc. In 1990, while he was doing a hind-leg walk, something an elephant would never do in the wild, Doc broke his leg. It never properly healed. Mike Hackenberger, the zoo owner, claims Doc was the only elephant injured under his watch, and after his accident, the hind-leg walk was never performed there again. But it was a classic case of shutting the barn door after the elephant had fallen. Bowmanville Zoo was taken to court, charged with animal cruelty, and subsequently closed. We feel this is a tragic example of being tried in the public court before being tried in the real court. The Bowmanville Zoo has closed its doors for the last time. Century-old institution in Bowmanville. Visitors left the Bowmanville Zoo for the very last time. But not before, in 2008, aged just 37, and still suffering from the after-effects of his old injury, Doc was put down. Traditionally, elephants were trained using the ankus, or bullhook, which is a stick with a sharp, pointy hook at the end. It seems amazing to me that some elephants, and tigers and lions too, are still trained like this, to do stuff that doesn't come naturally to them, balancing on a ball, doing a handstand. Thankfully, that's been phased out in a lot of zoos and animal parks, certainly in the ones accredited to the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums. In these places, techniques for training animals generally, and elephants specifically, have moved on. In giant, elephant-sized strides, you might say. What's so funny is um, one of my friends realized for the first time, she just came in the room because my initials are E-L-I, Ellie. <laughs> Here's Erin Ivory. With that name, she was clearly born to work with elephants. You've got to be kidding me. And I was like, well. <laughs> It was meant to be. Yeah. Erin started her career training dolphins and orcas at SeaWorld. Later, she got a master's degree in animal behaviour. All the while, she was working with elephants and the people who trained and kept them at zoos and wildlife parks around the world. She's a co-founder of Elephant Care International, which helps to train people who train and care for elephants. And she's currently head of mammals at North Carolina Zoo, which has six elephants. Now, traditional elephant management tends to focus more on positive punishment and negative reinforcement. So let's say you were to have an elephant that was standing still and not moving forward and you wanted them to move forward and they didn't, then they would take the ankus and they would apply it to the back of the leg, applying pressure. Whether that was just gentle pressure or hard pressure, it's applying something to the back that, that's uncomfortable so then the elephant would move away. And this was the traditional way, both in the East and the West. Yeah, horse training, elephant training. I mean, it's pretty common with dogs, the leashes with the mm -hmm. collars that pinch. 
That's positive punishment and negative reinforcement. That was elephant training past. Now to the present and future. So positive reinforcement training, getting away from dominance, control, moving towards choice and control for the animal, and making sure that our relationship was based on positive interactions. We don't use the word no. Any incorrect behavior is, we use what's called an LRS, least reinforcing scenario. So it's like a three second pause to let them know that something wasn't right. And if the animal, like the elephant is calm, during that three seconds, during kind of like the reset, you can reinforce them for calm behavior. So basically you're teaching them that failure is okay. It's a part of learning Mm. and that you're working on it together. So sometimes the mistake might be on the elephant's part. Sometimes it might be on my part. When I say positive reinforcement, what that means is that you're rewarding behaviors that you want to see increase. So reinforcement is to increase the likelihood of behavior will continue. Positive simply means you're adding something to the situation. So when you have positive reinforcement, you're adding something to the situation to increase the likelihood of the behavior. So most people associate that with food. So if your dog sits, you ask your dog to sit and they do so and you give them a treat, that's positive reinforcement. It sounds quite like the star chart tacked on the kitchen wall when our children were young. It's a thought that sticks with me throughout this story. It's just being kinder to animals enough. All these animals, you know, they recognize you as an individual. You're not just a sea of like, oh, there comes the person in the right shirt that's going to feed me. They recognize you and the relationship that they have with you is just as important as the relationship you have with them. And they don't treat all keepers the same. They don't like Mm. all people the same. So... It is a one-on-one relationship. So I feel that in some of these higher social species, especially like elephants, it is a lot more about that individual relationship that you have with them. You know, you have some elephants that, like our elephant Tonga here at the zoo, she loves tactile. So if you rub her brow, she loves it. She would rather do that than anything. But... You know, some other elephants, that's not necessarily as reinforcing for them. What Erin is saying, in effect, is that the elephant's human carers become their family too. In Happy's case, her third family. My dog, Ethie, is 14 and a half. We've taught her tricks to roll over, sing, and, yes, to walk on her hind legs. Doc's story made me think about that. Was it wrong? Is there a difference between a dog dancing and an elephant prancing? So that's Sleepy and Doc, both sadly deceased. We've still got Happy and four other members of her thrown-together family to account for. Bashful and Dopey were sold to Howard Johnson's circus in May 1978 and then moved on to a ranch in California that provided elephants for films, shows and rides. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com. We're Carrie and Gary Johnson of Have Trunk Will Travel. We've been living with and working with elephants for over 40 years. It's all we've ever done and all we've ever wanted to do. When we bring animals into human care, we need to understand how to help them live a balanced life based on the requirements of nature and achieve a healthy state of mind. As the people who love and care for elephants... Then in 1993, some say after California banned the use of the ankus or bullhook which the Johnsons referred to slightly disingenuously as the guide. Without the use of the guide, their standard of care wouldn't be as high as it is. The goal of the guide is to cue the elephant. The tip shouldn't be too sharp or too blunt. If it's too blunt, it can scrape... Bashman and Dopey were sold to the George Carden Circus, based in less liberal Missouri. This is the sound of one of Carden Circus's performances. I've never seen it before, but my producer Matt has asked me to watch it and to describe it. Okay, so the elephants are coming in, one by one, holding each other's tails, and they've all got fancy dressed women riding them with wings on. The elephants do a pirouette, oh, faster and faster, and everyone's spinning round. Now the elephants have all turned to the centre and mounted onto these stools, all four legs. Oh gosh. And then the second elephant rises up and puts its four legs on the first elephant's bum and then the third one rises up and puts them on the second one's bum. And then they got to get down. And then they sit. And then they sit on their stools. Thankfully, the elephants are now leaving the circus arena. I should have found that really, really upsetting. I don't know, before before we started on this podcast, whether it would affected, have affected me or whether if I'd been there, I would have found it rather thrilling. But now, from what I've heard, everything I've learned about elephant sensitivity and empathy and, and intelligence and how proud and awe-inspiring they are in the wild, I find it yeah, really, really upsetting to see that. <laughs> I'm actually going to cry. Oh, that was horrible. Bashful and dopey 
who now go by the rather prosaic names of Jazz and Cindy, travel with the circus, train and eat with the circus. And the circus says the elephants are part of the family. The Carden Circus, America's biggest and also, according to the animal rights group PETA, one of its worst circuses for how it treats its animals, is on the road for 38 weeks a year in normal times. Here's Lucy Bates again. In general, yes, I would say elephants and circuses are worse off because not only are they sort of by the very nature of it being a travelling institution, there's probably only going to be at the most maybe two or three elephants in the circus. And because it's travelling, the vast quantity of their time is spent totally confined in very small travelling boxes, I suppose. So there's even less chance of social interaction. There's even more, there's sort of a greater reduction in their autonomy because they're they're just, they're confined. They have no choice. When they do get to a, a, a place where the circus is stopping, you know, they might be built a sort of temporary enclosure. But even within that, because of just obviously the strength of elephants versus the kind of temporary nature of what they're building, within that they spend still spend vast periods of their time chained so they can't walk very far they can't do anything that they want to do and often you know they'll only be given food or water at certain times of the day so they even like you know the most basic choice of when you get to take a drink of water you don't have um and and so i think for those reasons yes circus elephants are even worse off and, and, you know, obviously a lot of modern zoos are trying very hard. And I don't want to sort of disparage zoos necessarily. You know, a lot of them try very hard. They understand the issues. But the sort of the fact remains fundamentally, a zoo is never going to be able to recreate everything that I think an elephant needs. At the extreme ends, there's a palpable difference between circuses and zoos like the Bronx. Given what goes on in circuses, why is happy at the centre of this story. The people behind circuses and zoos, as well as animal rights activists, all believe, at least they say they believe, that their animals' welfare is at the heart of everything they do. They just don't think the same can be said of the others. George Carden, the straight-talking, Rolex-wearing owner of the circus, said a few years ago that he wouldn't replace any of the circus's 12 remaining elephants once they died or retired. I've been on a circus longer than the Fells owned Ringland Brothers Circus, and of course my father that adopted me and raised me, he was in the circus prior to that. Come here, Duchess. Come here. Good girl. Come here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come here. Once they get too old and have to be retired, there is no more. But before the pandemic hit, Khan Circus was still performing. And sure enough, bashful and dopey, in spangled anklets and ornate headdresses, were centre stage. Sneezy, the fifth of the baby elephants who came with Happy from Thailand, plays a different role. On the face of it, a better one. Sneezy lives at Tulsa Zoo in Oklahoma with two other elephants, after the oldest elephant there, Gunda, passed away two years ago. And Sneezy had a built-in advantage. He's a bull elephant, a male. And for an endangered species, that means he's valuable. Breeding bulls were rarer than females, called cows, in the 80s and 90s, perhaps because, since they're bigger and stronger and often more violent, fewer bulls were imported to America. Over the years, other zoos have courted Sneezy for their breeding programmes. He probably doesn't know it, but Sneezy is a father of two. 
In that respect, he's testament to one of the most crucial roles of modern zoos, protecting endangered species through breeding programs. Over the past 75 years, the population of wild Asian elephants is thought to have halved. As human populations boom and illegal trade in ivory continues to flourish, the lives of wild elephants are under ever greater threat. Zoos like San Diego and many others are now in a position to try to introduce captive-bred Asian elephants to the wild. Something has happened over the last 30 or 40 years, an additional burden has fallen to zoos, and that is we are now tasked with preserving populations of animals. That's Grace Stafford, Director of Conservation at the Wildlife World Zoo and Aquarium in Phoenix, Arizona, and presenter of the podcast Zoo Logic. That is a big task. Whether those populations live in the wild, whether they live in human care, or whether they live in some sort of hybrid situation where we're, we're preserving them in the wild, but also nurturing them in human care and returning them to wild and, and continuing that genetic uh, cycle because those animals are under threat from poaching or habitat loss or any number of other uh, uh, pressures. That's very difficult in part because not all animals are the same. They don't, you know, a species of salamander might require this temperature and this humidity and this kind of habitat to reproduce and this sort of photo period and another species requires something different. So each species, each, each, each genus, each family might require something different than we already know. So we're studying the problem even, even as we're trying to mitigate the problem on a global scale. But the net result is, I'm sad to say, Sam, that in our lifetime, yours and mine, we have lost some 60% of biodiversity around the world. So at the same time that we have more technology, more ability to communicate internationally, instantaneously, our ability to preserve our planet seems to be crashing. We just aren't doing a, a good enough job at it. The UN panel of experts has found that one million animal and plant species face extinction. But scientists say we're now losing species at the fastest rate for millions of years. It is worse than expected. This is happening much faster than we've ever seen before. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. But Sneezy also encapsulates the paradox of keeping large charismatic megafauna, that's big animals to you and me, in captivity. In 1986, Sneezy seriously injured a Tulsa Zoo employee. Cash-strapped and lacking appropriate facilities at the time, the zoo was struggling to deal with a bull elephant out of his environment. Sneezy's job as a stud perhaps spared him a worse fate. He wasn't euthanised. But it's a powerful reminder that a zoo is not an elephant's natural habitat. So, we've dealt with Sleepy and Doc, and we've caught up with Dopey, Bashful and Sneezy. There are just two of our elephants left, Happy and Grumpy. And for them... Once they were separated from the others, their days of being moved from pillar to post were over. In 1977, they were sold to the Bronx Zoo. Do you know what the Bronx Zoo is? The Bronx Zoo is a place where animals come from all over the world to see what people look like. At the Bronx Zoo, our animals live in natural environments. So we'd like them to see you relaxed and comfortable too. So dress casually and bring the whole family. We've tried, repeatedly, to speak to people working at Bronx Zoo, now or in the past. But nobody would talk on the record for fear of a backlash. 
Elephant handlers told us that, unfortunately, participation in media stories often leads the animal activists to launch a harassment campaign against those animal professionals who dare to speak up and advocate for safe and lawful elephant exhibition. And Bronx Zoo is keeping the lips of its employees firmly buttoned. That said, we do know a lot about Happy's life there. Once she and Grumpy moved to the city that never sleeps, they quickly made their mark. One of their trainers in the early days was a man named Larry Joyner. Happy is a more physical elephant than anything I've ever seen, he told a reporter. Most people, when they train elephants, cats, horses or whatever, usually turn them loose and just watch them for hours. Then you can figure out what trick to put on each elephant. Happy runs more, she moves more, she's rougher. That's why I put all the physical tricks on her. The hind leg stand, the sit-up. Grumpy's more intelligent, she learns well, she uses her head. That was 1981. And so, from the tropical forests of Thailand to the arid hills of California, from the flatlands of Florida to the concrete jungle surrounding Bronx Zoo, Happy and Grumpy, like the yin and yang of their respective names, lived together peacefully. Bronx Zoo had a Noah's Ark-style policy. Its elephants lived in pairs, and Happy and Grumpy were a natural fit. But in 2002, they were put in an enclosure with two of the zoo's other elephants, Maxine and Patty. As often happens with elephants in captivity, they didn't get on. Maxine and Patty charged at Grumpy and injured her badly. The four elephants were split up again into their pairs, but it was too late. In October 2002, Grumpy, Happy's companion for 30 years and the last tie to her early life in Thailand, died. Touching behaviour and investigating, as, as, as the elephant is dying, typically its family members will stay around, they'll try and do what they can to sort of help it. If, if they can, they might try and help the elephant to stand up, they, they can keep sort of again, more touching and reassurance behaviour. And then usually after the elephant has died, that there's intense interest. The, the family members will stay, other elephants that aren't related will come and investigate the body, touch the body. But the way they do it is particularly compelling as well because it, it's not sort of, it's not the way they investigate a stick or, you know, something they happen to find, a piece of rubbish. There's, when you watch it, you can't help but see it as mourning behaviour. There is, often it's nearly silent, whereas elephants typically are always sort of making rumbles to each other and there's some sort of talking going on. When when they're in the presence of a dead elephant, it will be nearly silent. And the movements are very slow and sort of deliberate and it it just resembles mourning behaviour. But it there's also a sort of what I am going to call a kind of a grief reaction, I think. There is a trauma to the separation, usually. Mother elephants will often stand with the remains of a calf that has died for days, you know, very prolonged periods, at the, to the risk of their own health often if they haven't moved away to drink or to feed. And, and just the sort of demeanour of the elephants changes. Despite her physicality, Happy is not an aggressive elephant. Grumpy was the more dominant personality in their relationship. And given what happened with Grumpy, the zoo couldn't risk putting Happy back in with Maxine and Patty. So they found her a new mate, Sammy. Happy and Sammy not only got on, it brought out a new side to Happy, a maternal side. Unfortunately, it was all too brief. In 2006, just four years after Grumpy's death, 
Sammy fell victim to kidney disease. Check out those gorgeous eyelashes. We normally don't get this close. I happy. Good girl. Nowadays, this is the only way to see happy. From a distance, via the wild Asian monorail that trundles through the Bronx Zoo's southern enclosures. As you might be able to tell, Happy is alone, as she has been for 14 years now. The elephant's trunk is an incredible tool with over 40,000 muscles in it. That's more than the entire human body. It's got a finger like appendage at the end. With it, she can pick up an egg without breaking it or tear down a small tree with great force. As we say goodbye to Happy, we're going to be on the lookout for my... It's not a happy sight. That isn't how elephants live in the wild. And as experts such as Lucy Bates say, it is definitely not how they should live. If you care about how an elephant like Happy might be feeling on her own, stripped of all the relationships she'd naturally have with other elephants, it's a pretty desperate situation. I do care. And this isn't how I'd want Happy's long journey to end. But back in the early years of this century, something was about to happen that would, over a decade later, sow the seeds of Happy's upcoming courtroom drama and unleash the possibility of significant change, not only to Happy's circumstances, but to the lives of all creatures, great and small. Next time, we hear the moment that changed Happy's life from the man who was inadvertently responsible and how that in turn changed his life. But if Happy's story so far is one that's touched you and you'd like to listen to or read more Tortoise Investigations, the best thing to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play stores. You can take a 30-day free trial to get you going, which gives you access to the Tortoise Members app and all the journalism Tortoise does as well as early bird access to the latest audio stories and in-depth investigations, you'll get the chance to come to daily open editorial events called Thinkins, where you can share your view with Tortoise editors and guest speakers. These include Elizabeth Day and James O'Brien in the next couple of weeks. You'll also get The Sensemaker, a daily newsletter email full of calm and clear analysis delivered straight to your inbox, and loads of other member benefits from special summits to editor voicemails. So please do try the app, and I hope you enjoy it. And please do tune in for part two of our story about Happy, the elephant in the courtroom. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.